Hello, I'm Elena Delval, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Angelina Jaspers, who is author of Marketing Flexology, How to Outsmart Change and Future-Proof Your Career. We will discuss the need for marketing agility. Over a rewarding 30-year corporate career, Angelina experienced revolving door CEOs, business course corrections, and lots of reinventions. After leading multiple company-wide transformations, she learned what separates the career winners from the career losers during change and transformation. She shares what she's learned through customized workshops, presentations, consulting engagements, and her new book. Angelina, welcome. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity to join you today, Elena. What do we mean by marketing agility? Well, that's a that's a great question. It's a good that we're starting with that word first. Actually, if you do a Google search on the term agility, you'll get a ton of information, images, and videos of dogs. That's not what we're talking about. Dogs racing against a clock as they navigate an obstacle course, you know, with amazing dexterity and speed. So apparently agility is a growing dog sport in the United States with over a million entries to the American Kennel Club. I love dogs, but that's not the agility I'm talking about. So for most of us, the term agility, at least in the marketing professional profession, means the ability to move quickly and easily. It defines someone or something that is alert, sharp, light-footed, and nimble. So you hear people talk about an agile mind, an agile athlete, an agile leap, or an agile person. Now, to complicate the term even further, in the world of marketing, we often hear the term agile marketing, and with it the concepts of sprints, scrums, scrum masters. So agile marketing, which we also refer to as MarTech, that focuses heavily on marketing technology, infrastructure, and process fueled by data and analytics. Which brings me to marketing agility. So the marketing agility I'm advocating doesn't involve sprints, scrums, or scrum masters. Instead of technology and infrastructure and process, this marketing agility emphasizes people and organization. So marketing agility is an organizational capability as well as a professional attribute, and it is an extremely valuable trait during times of uncertainty and change. And it emphasizes people, people within the company? Yes, people and organizations and how they work together. So there's a saying that says you can't have an agile organization without agile people. So it's both the organization and the people themselves. Now, just to be clear, it's not an excuse for being flighty or reactive or, you know, in in pursuit of shiny bright objects. You know, this marketing agility is really how quickly and seamlessly an organization or an individual can change direction when the situation demands and still remain robust enough to absorb any setbacks. And that's really what the dynamic world of marketing requires today. Is that an inherent conflict from the get-go in big companies? I've come across a number of studies that talk about how innovation is hard to come by in large companies because they become so set in their ways. Would this fall under that? Would this be part of the 
Well, let me try that sentence again. How can a company be agile in their marketing if they are not agile as a company? Oh, it, that's, a, that's a very salient point, and that's why I said earlier, an agile organization requires agile people. So organizations are just people, really, in systems and processes. And if those aren't agile and those aren't built to be responsive and uh, resilient, and then the system slows down. And you're right, Elena, that many larger companies have problem with agility. They lead on their advantages are scale. Right, their size, their global nature, and scale, but not speed is never really their their strong spot. So what I advocate is, at least for the marketing department, and I think it can be applied uh, past marketing to other departments as well, is a straightforward system or framework which allows you to operate, at least in marketing, in a very seamless and agile manner. What do you need in order for that to be possible? Because, of course, as a marketer in a company, regardless of the size, you have to interact with the other departments, with the senior level and the less senior level mm-hmm. individuals in the company in order to get traction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think that it's really uh, marketing flexology, so to speak, is really based, it's a, it's a broad term, but it's really a framework that has a, uh, it's a mindset and a tool set. And quite frankly, the tool set is easier to convey because that's about people, programs, budgets, agency, the dials that you have, and how you can fine-tune those dials to be more agile, how you can turn one lever up when you face a business challenge and when you can, how you can turn another dial down. And it, and it also, the tools, you know, whether it's a communication brief or a messaging framework or marketing playbook or executive dashboard, those tools and dials and foundation are, are pretty straightforward, but they're very important important to have that foundation in place. The mindset, I feel, is a harder piece to, to uh, instruct or to convey, but you need both the mindset and the tool set in order to be a dynamic organization. And what are the prerequisites for that? Well, um, the, the mindset, the foundation allows your team to operate more intelligent, efficient, and productively. Uh, and, and pivot and bounce back. The traits that I've observed, so the mindset that I've observed, is really two things. One is to be a business-first leader. And so let me explain that a little bit. Whenever, um, during challenging times, there's always three choices or trade-offs that we need to make. And people react to challenging situations, whether it's a downturn, an acquisition, a divestiture. Um, and they'll say, okay, how does this affect me? Or they'll say, how does this affect my team? Or they'll say, how does this affect my business or my customer? And I have found through all the marketing transformations that I've led over the years that those marketing professionals that led with a business-first mindset and put their business hat on, so to speak, instead of thinking about what it means to them personally or career-wise and really look to advance their company or help their customers, really came out to be the career winners in this, in this situation. I remember someone saying that they looked for people who had a certain kind of attitude when hiring because 
that attitude, positive, upbeat, responsive, was something that you couldn't teach, that you could teach someone your procedures, your philosophy, your corporate attitudes, if you will. But if they didn't already arrive with the right attitude, nothing that you had would be able to transform their attitude. How does that relate to what we're discussing in relation to this agility in marketing? Yeah, very, very much so. So um, actually their uh, agility has been become, and soft skills, so to speak, have become much more of a key leadership competency. You know, Elaine, it's always been an adapt-or-die world, and I think we've all are familiar with Charles Darwin's quote, that uh, proclaimed it's not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. You know, he said that over 150 years ago. And business leaders are now just beginning to acknowledge how important agility is to their success. And to your point, the rules of employability are changing as well um, because the future of work demands different types of skills and competencies than were traditionally taught by higher education. So employers today are generally looking for a mix of skills and behaviors or attitudes. You know, there's hard skills and then there's soft skills. Um, Soft skills such as communications, problem solving, uh, digital proficiency, productivity, confidence, drive, um, self and social awareness, creativity and agility. These behaviors are often just as important for career success, though they are harder to measure. And I can give you a couple data points, actually, that um, in a survey that PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, did of 1,150 CEOs, 76% of them said that their ability to adapt to change will be a key source of competitive advantage in the future. Uh, Similarly, uh, McKinsey did a study that found that 9 out of 10 executives said that organizational agility was critical to business success and it was growing in importance over time. And then Corn Ferry, uh, the executive uh, search and uh, firm, they have conducted over 2.5 million leadership assessments over the past four decades. And what they found was that being learning agile was a key predictor of success and a critical attribute of effective breakthrough leadership above intelligence, above education level, or even leadership competency, but they found that only 15% of executives possess that trait. I mean, that's really amazing. Learning is no longer something we just do in schools. You know, learning agility is something today's successful business leaders, you know, need to embrace. And just to repeat, you said only 15% of executives have that learning agility? Yes. Out of the 2.5 million leadership assessments they conducted, only 15% were learning agile. That's, 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 pretty, that's pretty revealing. Did they share any characteristics of that 15%? Is there any geographic information mm. or gender or age? Is there anything that makes that 15% stand out? You know, that's a very good question, and I'm going to go look at that source. I'll I'll get back to you on that. I'm going to look and see if they have any uh, qualitative assessment of that, you know, of those 15%. Why and what was different about that 15%? I don't know. That seems like the kind of thing to zero in on, right? I think so. Yeah, because there's a secret there, right? I mean, the fact that it's only 15% is startling, but why? 
you know, and maybe it's because learning agility is, is something that you know, maybe we focus too much on the hard skills over the years and less on the soft skills. I think you're seeing that shift for certain. You know, uh, Microsoft did a poll, uh, a LinkedIn poll, actually. I saw it uh, in early um, early March, I believe. They did a poll with 600 global <clears throat> senior marketing participants. Now, these are marketing people. So 600 marketing people, and according to the survey results, they asked what are the most important skills for marketers to have in the 2020s. And they found that the hard skills were SEO, data analysis, copywriting, behavioral analysis, and automation. But they also found equally that the soft skills were just as important, and they included creativity, humility, empathy, transparency, and adaptability. So that kind of falls into this whole marketing agility, adaptability, resilience. So I'm glad to see the soft skills are really taking on much more of a, you know, um, a presence. You hear a lot, even in our own hiring for people, it's, you know, all the candidates at a certain level are, are qualified, well qualified. But then we always look at, you know, which one is a better cultural fit, that whole thing about fit, which is so hard to, you know, to, you can't measure that on a resume, right? You can only, it's a gut feel. It's really the soft skill. So becoming increasingly important. Do you think that this emphasis on STEM, you know, the sciences and technology that we have seen in the last years just skyrocket and by extension a lack of interest or an underestimation of the soft skill areas, whether they're learned in school or otherwise, some of these things that you described are not necessarily something that you learn in an academic way, not necessarily take creativity or humility or empathy Mm -hmm. or even adaptability in classes. Mm -hmm. And yet I would argue perhaps that they're more likely to be found in those non-technical STEM areas. What do you think? I agree with you. I think that I think it's important to have that base of knowledge. But even if it's a STEM, obviously very good, solid uh, knowledge base, and very very important to move the economy forward, especially a technology-driven future. And um, but if those professionals can't convey that information, can't persuade, can't um, uh, negotiate, can't collaborate, can't communicate. You know, they're, they're, all their knowledge is almost for naught, you know, right? You need to have that good balance between that technical experience, same with marketing. You know, if you're an SEO expert, but you can't communicate that in a layman's term to the leadership team, they won't invest in it or they won't understand it. They'll just think you're talking, you know, some secret language of marketing, marketing speak. So I think it's important to, you know, have a technical expertise or hard skills is critically important. You know, there's a lot of hard skills that are very important. But unless you have the soft skills, you know, you won't be able to uh, convey it or communicate it or um, reach decision-making, collaboration, conflict resolution, all those things that are so, so, so valuable and so important in driving business forward. There is oftentimes a culture of 
what would we call it, where failure is punished. And so many people are afraid to try new things. They're afraid to pivot in the direction that the market is changing because if they make a mistake, it could cost them their career. It could cost them their job. Do you see that? Well, sure, sure. That's part of the culture, right, the culture of the company. And that's, again, the soft side maybe of organizations. But that's um, if a, if an organizational culture is risk adverse and a, a marketer or a business professional is not risk adverse and they want to be able to pivot and change and be a dynamic leader, it's probably not a good fit for them. So maybe that's where the cultural fit comes in or the business fit Um and that's maybe why some would gravitate toward a more nimble, speedy company or agency in order to practice their craft rather than a big bureaucratic company, for instance. But I do think you can find <coughs> excuse me <coughs> I do think you can find nimbleness or nimble organizations within large companies. I've spent most of my career at large global Fortune 50 companies, and I've been able to succeed and been able to practice the the traits of agility in those companies with ease because a a company like i said earlier is made up of of people and departments and organizations and you can be the standout organization and marketing gets a lot of leeway i think is given a lot of leeway in order to be more responsive and um, uh, in tune with consumers than perhaps finance or accounting or the law firm or the legal department. We said in your bio that you have learned what separates career winners from career losers. What is that? Well, uh, I've led a number of change initiatives over my career, to your point, and without a doubt, change is hugely, hugely disruptive. You know, instead of thinking, people thinking about, oh, this change is going to increase my efficiency or effectiveness or it's going to be positive, instead it really, most employees uh, um, address it with distrust or anxiety and sometimes work paralysis, or they shift their focus away from customers and focus start focusing on themselves. So uh, some of the re-transformations that I have um, was tapped to lead and uh, were company-wide transferred transformations. One in particular was across 5,000 marketing professionals, across a $2 billion marketing investment, and about 4,000 marketing suppliers. And after experiencing firsthand, up close and personal, how hundreds of different marketing leaders and how they manage their teams, their budgets, their programs, their agencies, you know, I came to realize that much of the reinvention chaos was self-inflicted. You know, time and time again, I witnessed leaders, marketing leaders, who tolerated underperforming team members. They endured antiquated processes. They had maintained runaway budgets. They had invested in ineffective campaigns, and they partnered with suboptimal agency. And then during challenging times when you're doing a marketing transformation or a business reorganization, you know, their warts, their organizations became exposed, warts and all. And so that's why I advocate a marketing structure that's light on fixed costs and heavy on variable costs. And that really gives us immense marketing flexibility and agility. 
Um, and then I go on to explain that, you know, what the career winners in these upheavals, you know, it's a soft skill we talked about, Elena, they all shared a common trait. They had a business-first mindset. The leaders who placed their companies and the customers first before their teams, before themselves, they really, I found, met, uh, emerged from these transformations relatively unscathed. But the me first, me first leaders who put their own careers and teams ahead of their companies suffered the biggest upset to their budgets, their teams, their standing, and even their jobs. So that's why I believe cultivating a business first mindset is by far the most important thing a dynamic marketing leader can do. It's kind of counterintuitive. You know, it's kind of like you should be focused on yourself and your team first, but it really does work. What kinds of companies have these kinds of customer-first attitudes. There's a lot of people that give lip service to that, but the lip service and the company culture are not necessarily in sync. Where have you seen, would you share examples with us, of companies where you have seen this in action or where you believe this is taking place? Well, it's hard for me to, you know, you 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 read, um, you can read the case studies like I do, and so you hear certain companies that really, whether it's Southwest Airlines, you know, and their whole motto of customers first, and there's some drawbacks to that, but they have a very customer first uh, culture. Um, you hear Richard Branson speak a lot about um, customers first. He does never thinks about the impact on himself and his Virgin Airlines and all the other business dealings. He's, those two come to mind as really standouts that have put their customer first and customer front and center and uh, really the customer in the middle instead of themselves in the middle and then have designed systems and processes to address those customers. Um, so those kind of come to mind, top of mind. Um, but many of the departments that I worked in, uh, whether it was HP or Eastman Kodak Company, I was able to transform them also into be business first to think of the customer. Now, that doesn't mean that it permeated to every single global country, you know, region, state, uh, division across the globe, but it did permeate in the areas where you can make change and have impact. I'm sure there's others, but I'd have to think through, you know, some others. Those two come top of mind, companies that have customer-first attitude. Is there a link between success and longevity of a company and this marketing agility that we're discussing? So say that again. A link between company, um, length of a company survival and agility? Yes, absolutely. So we're seeing companies that are not surviving because they themselves are not adapting to market changes. Uh, Xerox comes to mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is sad. You know, it's really sad. These A lot of iconic brands, you know, they either go away or they're a reduced fraction of themselves. Kodak, you know, where I spent 20 years of my the first 20 years of my career, you know, and then you think of companies like uh, TWA, I don't know if you remember them, or General Foods or Circuit City and Borders, you know, what happened to all those companies? They were once household names, but not anymore. And so I think that's really the complacency has set in. Uh, agility, lack of agility, complacency. Uh, Andy Grove, remember Andy Grove? He was the co-founder and he was the former CEO of Intel. And he had said at one point, success breeds complacency. Complacency breeds failure. Only the paranoid survive. 
And I think those are really good words to manage by. Only the paranoid survive. So if you become complacent, you know, you're successful, you become complacent, you're complacent, you start failing. And unless you're always on top of it and always nimble and always, you know, hungry, I think, you know, that you're in danger of becoming extinct. You know, in the past, some brands used to live 100 years. And today, the average span of a company on the S&P 500 is 15 years. 15 years. So obviously, there's, they're, they're, they're losing touch with their customers, not getting that insight, and not reacting and adapting fast enough. Uh, and they're, they're now a fraction of themselves, or you know, they faded into the sunset. We're also seeing, since you mentioned the S&P 500, that there are fewer publicly traded companies than there were even a decade ago. The number of publicly traded companies has shrunk. They have either gone under or been bought out. Do you see, have you noticed a relationship between this marketing agility and this change in the stock market? Well, that's it. I haven't analyzed that, Elena, but it, you make an interesting point because a lot of companies, I think of Dell for one that just comes to mind, that was public, private, went public, and then pulled itself private again because uh, there's this stubborn thing called the quarterly earnings and stockholders that you have to be uh, accountable for. And I think Dell felt that they had more agility or ability to uh, to make trade-offs that don't pay off or make bold choices perhaps or gambles that perhaps might not pay off in 12 weeks when the next um, earnings report is due and the stockholders are looking at your share price, but pay off in the long term. So I do, I, I do agree with you that I have seen a trend of companies preferring to be private for as long as possible rather than to be under the public eye and the quarterly earnings uh, rigor uh, not that you don't want to be accountable to shareholders, but, you know, 12 weeks is, you know, not enough time for any company to really make an impact and to take a gamble. And then you're going to end up doing the same old thing over and over again, formulaic. And then on the other side of that spectrum, you, know, you have the companies, as you were saying, like Dell, who went private, public, private again, companies that are buying back their own stock, which has become almost a derriger. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have a company like Amazon, which I believe went without any profits for, what was it, 20 years? Yeah, yeah, they were in the bread. Nobody remembers that, that they were hurting. They were bleeding money, just like Tesla, right? They were in the red until finally, and now the people think they were always successful. Not, not the case. Well, and see, now that brings me to another question is, how do you define success? Is it something immediate? Is it your dividends to stockholders? Is it your return on a given year? How do we compare the success of a strategy, say, for example, marketing agility, to its relationship to these companies and their quote-unquote success? Mm, it's, it's a great question. It's not an area of my expertise, but what I do think comes to mind by you saying that is the internal debate that we hear that's been raging for decades about brand versus demand. I'm sure, Elena, you've been in that debate many, many years where um, there's always a tug of war internally. Should we invest more in brand, which is very much a longer term, right? It's a reputation building, a longer term investment in your customers, in your brand, your reputation, your share of mind, 
you know, awareness, perception, very, very important, but the returns on brand investments don't show up, you know, sometimes for years, whereas demand gen, which is rapid rapid turn, you know, campaign focus, buy now, a call to action type button, they're easier to measure. And even the assignments and the companies that I'm supporting today, you know, there's that internal debate. And there's a misunderstanding about brands, too, because the feeling is, oh, we invested in brand last year. You know, why do we, we already, people already know us, you know, we just need to, you know, ring the cash register. But that's a very short-term you know, thinking there. And I, it, that just came to mind because you're talking about the financial kind of demand feels like, uh, if I can make that vague comparison to the quarterly financial returns in a public company. And brand is really a private company has more leeway, whether it's the Amazon, you know, in the red for 20 years or Tesla, you know, uh, just forging ahead, doing the right thing. Uh, and sometimes struggling to make payroll, uh, but they're building a longer-term relationship with their customers. And in the end, that's a much better, to me, is a much better long-term strategy and investment uh, than, you know, doing it on a quarterly basis or seeing the latest results of a campaign. Obviously, you need both, and we're all accountable to someone. Um, we all have a boss, but um, it, a be- better balance between the two, I think, is, is definitely in order. Let's talk about that relationship with the customer that you mentioned. That seems to vary to some degree depending on who the customer is and what the product or service or combination of product and service is that's for sale. What can you tell us about that? Mm, that's, a, that's a good one. The relationship between customers and marketers, you know, it's, well, uh, up until recently, up until the recent uh, pandemic, it's really been a great time to be consumer, but perhaps uh, the worst time to be a CMO or to be a marketing leader. You know, there in the old days, there was a time and a very good time it was when companies owned their brands. You know, we controlled our message, the frequency, the audience, the channel, and we controlled the customer journey. You know, it was when there were big brands, mass media, mass marketing, you know, and we had very <clears throat> carefully orchestrated push brand messages. But, you know, the Internet changed all that. And today it's no longer about you, how you want to connect with the customer. This is becoming more customer centric. Rather, it's about how the customer wants to connect with you. And so the whole world of brand and marketing has been turned upside down because brands are not owned by their respective companies anymore. Consumers own our brands, and I think that's a very hard concept for most business professionals and leaders to understand. You know, social media has a lot to do with that. Um, a, a brand is not no longer what we tell the customers, what the consumers, the customers tell each other. You hear a big uprise in reference marketing, referral marketing, influencer marketing. You know, um, today, you know, every employee, every past, present, and future customer, every dissenter, and every stakeholder, you know, has a voice into who your brand is and in your brand reputation. You know, whether it's a tweet on Facebook, a like, a Yelp review, a YouTube spoof, or consumers are bringing brand experience to a new light. And it's a real, you know, it's a real paradigm shift, and marketers need to be agile and customer-focused and business-minded to be able to 
uh, in, understand the customer and then be able to relay and communicate a meaningful, transparent message uh, consistently that resonates with them. One of the questions that I most often find companies at a loss to answer is who is your customer? Who is your client? When you say to a marketer, who are you addressing? Who is you or who's your primary target audience? And many of them, if not most, seem to draw a blank. Well, everybody is a common answer. Mm. Tell us about that. Yeah, no, if, if it's everyone, it's no one, right? And so that is Al Reese's favorite uh, famous line, you know, uh, messaging, uh, uh, positioning is the art of sacrifice. And I love that line because if you're all things to all people, you're really nothing to anyone. And so I think knowing your customer and be able to leave things on the table, there's a saying also, in, you know, in the book industry, they say, you know, swim in your lane. Because it's tough. And you say, like for my book, I said, okay, swim in my lane. Okay, what's the niche? So it's not people in college. It's not people that are in their uh, encore careers in marketing. It's really the the midterm or mid-career marketing professional, maybe, you know, male and female, equal, but somewhere between – you know, 30 and 50, let's say, that could benefit from this. Because under that, and not saying that it's not relevant to uh, college students, but under that they don't have the experience and the organizational um, inner workings to understand why systems and processes, you know, are important and how to manage those, whether it's agencies, your budgets, your people, your programs. And so I kind of identify that early on, say, this is my sweet spot of who I'm going after and who could really benefit the most from my book, a mid-career marketing professional. And I think customers or companies need to do the exact same thing. Most companies I've worked for, though, they do have pretty robust customer personas, and they'll say, these are the industries, this is the target customer, these are where the customer, uh, where they read information, these are where, who influences them. So I think companies probably have a have done, at least the marketing teams I've worked with, have done a pretty good job of swimming in their lanes and leave being able to focus and sacrifice other groups by um, by really focusing on their target audience. It gets a little tricky when you talk about a brand message or a reputation message because then you're talking about multiple stakeholders, right, from investors to shareholders to employees, past, present, and future, to uh, – government entities, and then how do you convey a message to all of them that's relevant? And that's why I think you see, you know, press releases written in such a a, a general way because it really is just the facts appealing to a broad base of customers, prospects, and stakeholders. But in marketing programs, I think we have an opportunity to be very, very specific with our messaging and focused on our pain points and challenges and then the value-added that the company or this product might offer. How do you think that the fragmented markets that we have today and the fragmented channels as well as the diverse audiences, so we now have big generational divides, we have a big political divide that seems to be permeating everything, and consumption across a huge number of channels and choices. 
how does this all come together to make your marketing agility easier or more difficult? Yeah, so I think it, it, it fo- it's really based on insight, right? And so I, I use a little jingle in my book. You know, I talk about the marketing flexology elixir. And I say the recipe goes something like this. Combine equal parts insight and agility, shake well, and serve it with a splash. So I think it really starts with insight, right? And you, you hit it on the head earlier where you said knowing your customer and uh, who they are and really talking to that customer and being not afraid and not being afraid to leave other customers out of the conversation or out of your focus spot because you're trying to be re- relevant. But that insight really is, for a marketer, it's, the, it's your lifeline to the customer. The good news is that there's no shortage of data or customer insight out there. It comes from multiple sources, many forms, you know, they, the comments, complaints, unsolicited feedback, observation, market research, uh, there's surveys, there's interviews, there's pollings, there's tastings, social media, shopping behavior. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can get real-time, up-close and personal insight. And, but what we find is that while most businesses have rich customer data, they often struggle to aggregate and activate the data into a real-time insight. So, for instance, you know, when I was at, I won't mention the company, but a large technology company, we had a customer briefing center that conducted like eight customer briefings a day and with CEOs of major companies. And I was in the marketing department, and it's like, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had insight into what those customers were saying A to day, were saying day in and day out. Wouldn't that be a great lifeline to the marketing team, you know, to really take that insight, ask a few simple questions of each participant at the beginning or end of their session, and feed that into marketing as a lifeline. So we instituted a program to do just that. But that's the systems and processes. You know, they have this data, but it's in silos. Um, across a company. So the ability to tap into those silos and aggregate them in a way that we really know a little bit more about the customer from the daily interactions we have. So it's not just the social team knows, you know, who's happy and who's sad with their social personas, but we also know from prospects, the win-loss data, maybe from sales. It all paints a very, very rich picture and portrait of who our customer is. You know, and it used to be that companies had, uh, relied on um, brand tracking and customer satisfaction or focus groups, advisory boards. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the effectiveness of those more traditional quantitative focus group methods as a, um, as a, um, uh, a vehicle to serve up customer insight, you know, because they say that, well, that's only as good as the customer's memory or there's good intention, but they don't follow through. Uh, the focus group in particular, the Wall Street Journal back in 2019, I believe, declared the focus group is dead. And I thought that was pretty um, pretty provocative, and that, that, um, that spurred a whole conversation around uh, different means of getting customer insights. But I I do think the prevailing consensus is that technology-driven tools do a better job in explaining consumer behaviors than surveys and climate-controlled rooms with one-way mirrors. The new technology is less expensive, less time-consuming. It's nimble, gives you insight at a moment's notice, and allows you to do real-time decision-making and speed to activation. 
So that's the agility I'm talking about, too. So it's insight and agility. Couple the two and throw in a splash of creativity, and you've got a pretty good um, uh, foundation for uh, developing marketing agility, marketing agile organization. Oftentimes, smaller businesses don't have the resources and the know-how to even understand the importance of marketing, to allocate a marketing budget, never mind all of these strategies that we've been discussing. Are you finding that this has changed over time? Are you finding this marketing agility across the board, regardless of the size of the company? Well, you should. You can start out small or you can start out large. You know, I've, like I said, I, I've worked in the past for many large global Fortune 50 companies, but now I'm doing consulting for smaller companies that are a couple billion dollars in revenue rather than, you know, 300 billion in revenue. But I do think there's, there's, so it's a scale issue. But if you don't have the processes as a small company, you know, you won't have them as a large company and vice versa. So both small and large needs them. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things, a lot of variables out of marketing's control. You know, we know that. But there are four elements that I found that are completely within marketing's control. And they are the people we hire, the programs we develop and launch, the channels we pursue, the agencies we partner with, and they're all decisions that we as marketing leaders own. So that's why I say the four dials, and I, I go into it in quite a bit of depth on how to fine-tune those dials, but they're people, they're programs, they're budgets, and they're agencies. And I do think, Elena, that scales, whether it's a small company or a large company. It doesn't require you know, tons of resources, whether you have technology infrastructure, maybe at a large company you might have Excel spreadsheets to manage all this at a small company, but the principles remain the same. And then you dial one up, you dial one down when faced with a uh, challenging business dynamic, and that I think, you know, you keep a keen eye on those, and then you can prevent some unfortunate consequences on the other end where you say, oh, my gosh, I'm out of whack, now I have to let some people go. Or, oh, my gosh, now I'm out of whack. I have to reduce my marketing budget. Or, oh, my gosh, I'm out of whack. I have to cut my agencies in half. If you really keep an eye on it, it's kind of like weight control, right? If you get on the scale every day and you're up a pound or two, you know, you make adjustments immediately. You don't wait until you say, oh, my gosh, how did I gain 20 pounds? And then course correct. It's a much harder thing to do down the line. But if you keep an eye, a keen eye on the levers every day, you know, and make sure they're fine-tuned. You know, you should be able to maintain a pretty even-keel marketing um, organization and be flexible with all the, the changes that are thrown our way, which there are many. What importance does marketing agility have in relation to your audience or your customer diversity. We're seeing this new generation that's coming in, the millennials, according to the, many of the studies that I've read, are the most diverse generation that we have yet to see, diverse in many ways. How does that, what role does marketing agility pay, I'm sorry, play in connecting with and being nimble in relation to this very diverse market. Hmm. It's, it's a good point. Uh, I have four millennials of my own, <laughs> and uh, their, their desires are a lot different than my desires, and their career choices are a lot different than 
than my career choices at the time. Uh, it might be the changing landscape. You know, everyone wants to work for the cool startups and the, you know, uh, but I think you can apply the agility principles at the cool startups as well as, which they perceive as being more nimble and the larger companies as being more um, bureaucratic or more um, um, slow moving. I don't think that really is the case though. And that's what I'm saying. I think you can have a very agile marketing organization, even if you're a large company or government entity. I haven't seen it applied in government uh per se, but I think any kind of institutional organization or company can benefit from this. And I do hope that we get more millennials or the younger generation gravitating toward uh, some some of these companies that have that really um, have such an ability to influence and scale. Because you if you have an idea or a concept and you're with a large company and you put it in this this stream, you know, if you will, that runs throughout this river that runs throughout this company globally, that I, that idea, that concept of the system or that process has such a magnifying effect, you know, such a multiplying effect, because once it catches hold in a large company, it really scales. So scale is, is your friend at a large company, um, which you don't necessarily have at a small company. You only can have so much impact um, so I do find a lot of the millennials are trying to make more of an impact, more of a legacy, have something more meaningful. So I think the onus is on us marketing leaders in companies to provide that kind of an environment, at least in the marketing realm. And I think we can. And I think uh, it's not impossible. You talk about the single view of the customer. What do you mean by that? Well, this kind of to my example that I mentioned earlier where we had the customer briefing center has one view of the customer. The win-loss data within a sales organization has a different view of the customer. You know, the NPS scores that many people aggregate and many companies implement um, has a different view of the customer. How do you tap into all those views of the customer and bring them to a point, a reservoir, a database, um, so that, you know, you can say behind door number one, you know, is all the information that I need to know and all the intelligence and knowledge that I need to know about um, a small business owner within financial services or something of that nature. I'm just making that. that, that. But all that data needs to be aggregated in a place so that everyone has a single view of the customer. If you have disparate views of the customer, whether it's uh, whatever parameters you're looking at, uh, you will not be able to address that customer in a singular voice, and you'll have a disparate voice out in the marketplace, and as a result, it's watered down. It's not as meaningful. So it starts with having those, right, the, the identified, clearly identified swim lanes. Who are the customers? Why are they important? Where do they look? Who are, influences them? And then having a single view on that and having all that information uh, resident somewhere. I'm not saying companies have got that not, but I think we're getting better at pulling that information into a uh, one source or at least a couple sources that you can tap into in order as marketers to be better define your, your communications brief and then you go to market tactics moving forward. Tell us a little bit more about that splash of creativity that you mentioned earlier. I love the splash. You know, so there's a, uh, we all know there's a dwindling supply of attention 
is probably one of um, the biggest challenges faced by businesses today. There was a Microsoft study that said that um, they found that in 2015 they conducted – Microsoft conducted a study in 2015, and they found that since the mobile revolution began, people now generally lose concentration after eight seconds. That was down from 12 seconds in 2000, and which is one second less than the attention span of a goldfish. <laughs> Isn't that awful? And Did so, you say a goldfish? Of a goldfish. This was a Microsoft study from 2015. Yeah, that we our attention span is one second less than that of a goldfish. Eight seconds. At least goldfish had nine second attention span. So how do we get their attention with this splash? Exactly. So to, so a lot's been written about fostering creativity. You know, and um, it all starts, I think it all starts with believing that you can become more creative and then practicing that on a daily basis. I mean, a lot of people say, no, I'm more analytical than creative, you know, the whole art and science debate. And there's a lot of things you can do on a daily basis to ignite your creative spark, you know, from trying new things to practicing mental imagery you know, to asking more questions, to reading more fiction, from practicing solitude to daydreaming, you know. And I do think, you know, with all the talk around automation, artificial intelligence, and, you know, the robots are coming, you know, creativity and some of those other soft skills that we talked about, humility, empathy, adaptability, transparency, that's one of the few things that are is going to be hard to automate, right? So artificial intelligence certainly is poised to transform marketing as we know it today. And that's good. You know, that's fine because as repetitive and some of the monotonous marketing tasks become more and more automated – I think that marketers will have additional time to hone our empathy, hone our emotional intelligence, our human judgment, our strategic thinking, and our creativity skills. You know, robots cannot yet <laughs> replicate those. And with this attention span, the ability to break through and hone that creativity, you know, is, in my, in my view, is marketing's best career insurance. So honing the soft skills, I think, is going to be help us future-proof our careers. What are the six core marketing processes that you describe in the book? Ah, the processes. No, I have to open it now. What are my processes? Page I 97. Oh, good. I, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I know. Let me see here. You actually have the book in front of you. You're cheating. <laughs> I'm trying to ask you intelligent questions. <laughs> and you're doing an excellent job, Elena. There you go. There you go. So, yes, I had outlined. Um, so I think pe we get tripped up as marketers, and we build process upon process, and sometimes they're so cumbersome. And so I always advocate start small, even as a large company. Start small and just look at the handful of processes that you need and, and stop there. So we all need a, a planning process, right? So how to um, plan your uh, strategy and your tactical marketing plans. We all need a budgeting process, you know, how to allocate money, how to decide who gets funding, which programs get funded. <clears throat> we need a customer engagement process. So this is a one view and a calendar of your interactions and outreach. And again, if you're a smaller company, you can do it on an Excel spreadsheet. If you're a larger company, there are systems and infrastructure and programs in place to help do customer engagement. Uh, the fourth one is measurement, you know, um, when and how programs will be ta tracked, 
measured, and reported on. You need an escalation and exception process. So if something doesn't fit neatly in the process, who do I go to? Is the CEO the only person that can break, uh, be the tiebreaker, or are there other processes if I have an exception? How do I escalate it? And then I, I call it a next practices or a uh, where institutional knowledge, experiences, and achievements are shared, leveraged, and celebrated. And, you know, it's if you stick with those six and say we're going to have one planning process, is it quarterly, annual, three-year, one budgeting process, again, what time frame, when does it happen, how, who's involved, what's that template look like, how do we engage the consolidated view of the customer, how are we measuring things, what's the exception process, and then how do we celebrate our wins and really um, share institutional knowledge, things that worked and things that were, as we like to say, learnings, right? And so I think those are the only six you need, and the rest becomes very, very cumbersome. Tell us about measurement. This is an area that perhaps the successful companies are better skilled at. Uh, Do you think that's true? Um, yes, I think that's true. I think they've probably had more experience, more repetition in measuring. Yeah, I do. They probably invest more in tools. There's only so much you can measure. Um, yeah, I do think it, it takes some practice and some tracking. You have to have a uh, baseline. Obviously, it all starts with a baseline because people can say, I want to increase X, Y, Z by 10 leads by 10%. But unless you know what you've done historically – what your baseline is and what that 10% is, you know, it's very hard to put a system in place to measure that. Um, sometimes small companies have an advantage, though, because if they don't have a system or process, you can build something very simple versus a larger company that they have something in place and it, it no longer works or it's a legacy system it's kind of broken and it's got too many form fields, you know, that type of thing. It's too cumbersome. Um but measurement is critical, and it really I always like to start with – I'm a big advocate of an executive dashboard. Um, you know, there's, there's scorecards, and then there's dashboards. You know, the scorecard is how, we're, um, how we measure our success and failure on a daily basis and, and pivot and make adjustments in real time. Okay, this landing page doesn't pull. This website ad isn't doing well, or this banner ad isn't doing well. These are the most, you know, the stuff you get from Google Analytics, right? And you make adjustments in real time. That is really to inform your day-to-day decision-making and trade-offs. And that's very, very important. Scorecards are important, but they're not the same as an executive dashboard. The dashboard, which I have found to be a very effective tool, is what you would serve up to the executive suite or your CEO, a one-page, very um, uh, attractively visualized page that at a glance will show you, you know, where you are, where you're going, and whether I should laugh or cry. (laughs) Because so many times you see a metric or a measurement and you say, oh, okay, well, is that good? Is that bad? You know, bounce rate, for instance, you say, well, without context, you know, you're just stating a data point and there's no context around it. So, you know, the big saying, you know, what, so what, and now what? You know, the the dashboard has to be not just what, you know, where you are, where you landed, whether it's for the quarter, but so what, you know, why is this important? Did it move the needle? You know, is it a significant uptick or decline? And now what? It's got to have some narrative based on what am I going to do now that I have this measurement data? What am I going to do different because of this? 
And I think that makes for a very uh, successful executive dashboard. I love the one-pagers, and I'm a, I'm a real advocate for that. I love a one-page plan, too, anything on one page, because for somehow, maybe it's just me, but I feel like if I can put a plan on one page or a message map on one page or executive dashboard on one page, I I, I feel like I can manage it because it's a one-pager. I can get my arms around it. Whereas if it's this Excel spreadsheet with 24 tabs and pivot tables, I feel like I can't manage it. But that's more a scorecard. So that's uh, probably a long-winded explanation, but measurements are very important. And how you present that information, how you act on that information is very, very critical in marketing. What role do you think super consumers play? How important are they? So are you saying super consumers, the influencers? You mean your top customers? Is that the, what you mean? The people, yes, the people that are big fans of your product or service, the people that are influencers in their mm-hmm. communities, even though they might only represent a small percentage of your buyers, mm-hmm. they may be buying a lot and they may yeah. be influencing other buyers. Yeah, no, that's very important. I think most companies, and hopefully most companies have this, they have a customer reference program, a customer referral program. I do find you're right that your top customers are your biggest advocates. And, um, you know, what is it, uh, 80% of your sales come from 20% of your customers. I think that's kind of a rule of thumb that I've heard, 80-20 rule. And I do think it's true. So you should really develop programs to reward and cent and uh, – uh, coddle or, you know, over-communicate with those uh, super consumers or super customers who have um, stood by you and really believe in you because word of mouth is so much more effective, I think, these days than uh, companies speaking. I mean, advertising and one-way communication and broadcast communication, push communication, if you will, you know, that's important. But I think if you have customers, and that's what I said earlier about customers own your brand, and when customers talk to other customers about your brand, that's really where the magic happens. So it's it's really critical. And if you don't have a customer referral program in place or customer reference program in place, I think that would be a good step forward for most marketers. Our market, our world has shifted. It's not even pivoted. I think we have yet in mid-April of 2020 to see what lies ahead. How can our listeners, how can the readers of your book prepare for these changes? This marketing agility seems to be right in the sweet spot to address all these changes that you talk about in the book and you talk in the book about preparing for the future. Mm-hmm. How can our listeners do that and survive in some cases? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. So I like to say that change is inevitable, but preparation is a choice. So no, no doubt about it. We can't control change. We can only react to it or be prepared for it. And building this nimble marketing foundation and a nimble culture, a mindset of our, for ourselves, you know, will help us as leaders weather most business fluctuations and unexpected shifts. So uh, there are three things I think that marketing professionals can to, do today 
that their future self will thank them for. And I like to say the first is hone your skills. So experts predict by the year 2034, 47% of today's jobs will be automated. That's a lot. 65% of today's students will be applying for jobs that don't yet exist. So the marketing prowess that landed you your current role will likely be outdated when you're vying for your next one. So commit to being a lifelong learner. Hone your skills. And there's no better time to do it than now. There's so many online tools, so many webinars, so many podcasts, so many people to listen to, ideas and tips, and it's all free for the most part. So hone your skills. The second one is become more strategic. You know, there's always another marketing challenge demanding of our attention. I think I sometimes I feel like I'm playing a game of whack-a-mole, you know, but no matter how hard you hit those moles, they see, still seem to pop up and more voracious than the last one. So doing more, doing it faster, working more hours, working around the clock is not the answer. I think we have to become more strategic. And... Um, Take the time to question how that next urgent marketing request advances a broader strategy and, in turn, how they'll help you achieve your company's overall business strategy. And, you know, uh, Simon Simic says, start with why. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be insulting as a marketing professional and someone asks for your help and say, well, why do you want to do this? But you have to, you know, have some problem solving and hone your skills of asking questions in order to get the root cause of what are they problem are they trying to solve. And then the third thing I think marketing professionals can do is to invest in themselves. Investing time and money in yourself is one of the best return on investments any of us can make. No matter, not only will it better prepare us for an uncertain future, but there's really a payoff, too, in terms of career readiness. So, whether it's becoming more strategic, more creative, more agile, you know, take lessons that continue to push you forward and move you out of your comfort zone. So those three, honing your skills, become more strategic, and investing in yourself, to me, are the three things that I, as a marketing professional, would advocate for any marketing leader. Do you have any specific thoughts as to how to deal with the COVID-19 changes that are ahead of us? Yeah, that's it's very timely and very top of mind. And you, like I, have been reading a lot of um, uh, stories or uh, accounts of companies who have pivoted, who have assessed their current situations and have made changes accordingly. Um, it's going to be a very different world. This There's no business as usual. It's not a return to normal. Uh, it's a return to abnormal or there's a new new normal coming out of this, the new reality coming out of this. And I think being adaptable and flexible and embracing that will change. I've heard reports, Dr. Fauci uh, said in early April, he said the business landscape will change. He predicts that that business um, interactions, business meetings will no longer ha- uh, start with handshakes, that handshaking will become something obsolete, which I found interesting. Uh, Microsoft just early uh, early April made an announcement that uh, they were canceling all physical events until June of 2021. I mean that's a huge uh, commitment, really out there, and uh, that's showing that. So we have to get better at podcasting and webcasting and uh, and uh, 
uh, virtual events and convening people virtually versus in uh, large gatherings. Even after we go back to a new normal, people are going to be hesitant to get in groups of more than 10 to certainly fill uh, sports stadiums or to go to big conventions. I know for one, I'm going to be a little more cautious in my business travel or in attending any conferences. So it's a wonderful time for marketers, you know, to invest in online learning and uh, virtual virtual anything. And I think we've all gotten pretty good at it. Maybe we've been dragged into it over these past several months with the pandemic and uh, working from home lifestyles. And, and somehow it seems like our productivity hasn't suffered too much, at least for the, the, the assignment I'm currently on. It feels like, you know, the daily check-ins I'm having with the teams, you know, twice a day have really almost increased communications. Whereas in the office, when it was a face-to-face environment, it was almost a little bit of hit or miss. Did I remember to tell this one and that one? It wasn't as formal, and now it seems like everyone's listening in at the same time. So I would encourage everyone to take advantage of that and to really think of new ways of marketing. Because the consumer is going to be forever changed, and as a result, marketing and our practices and our vehicles are going to be forever changed. So it's going to be a very fascinating journey, Elena. I'm hanging on to my seat. (laughs) Aren't we all? Yeah. Angelina, thank you for joining us from Los Gatos, California. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. You're such a delight to speak with. Thank you. Thank you. And to our audience, you have been listening to Angelina Jaspers, who is author of Marketing Flexology, How to Outsmart Change and Future-Proof Your Career, who discussed the need for marketing agility. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com. 